0: All right, Uh, I want to encourage you to open up to Acts chapter uh, 17, but I want to start off with this first slide from a quote from Jim Elliott. You want to put it up there for me? This is uh, what Jim Elliott wrote in one of his many journals in his his short missionary life, and he said this, Father, make me a crisis man. Bring those eye contact to decision. Let me not be a milepost on a single road. Make me a fork, that men may turn one way or another on facing Christ in me. Make me a crisis man, so that people, when they face Christ in me, have to make a decision one way or the other evangelism when we talk about evangelism as a church many people break out into sweats their hands get a little sweaty the thought about sharing the gospel is often a scary thing prayers like this from jim elliot are even a scary thing when i saw that it's just like yes god make me a crisis man but at the same time my heart starts beating rapidly Because to be a crisis man requires that I skillfully and honestly and intentionally share the gospel. Without the intentional, deliberate sharing of the gospel, without using words to share the good news of Jesus Christ, there is no crisis. There may be lives pictured with good morality. Wow, that looks really nice. They look like good people. But as we've learned in the past few months, weeks, the gospel causes crisis. It, it upsets the world for Christ. So this morning, we're going we're gonna to keep on looking at this evangelism, this sharing the good news, hoping that God's spirit really grabs a hold of our heart, turns us upside down, compels us by his grace to share the gospel. So before we open God's word, before we read his holy word, let's, let's pray that his spirit starts his cultivating work of tilling up the soil of our hearts to receive his word and to faithfully respond, obediently respond to his word. Let's pray. Father God, we confess together that all of Scripture is breathed out by God. God, we confess that it is the very Word of God that is like a sharp-edged sword that cuts through and divides and, and sharpens us and makes us more alive. We confess, too, that these very words this morning that will be read are the words of life, not just the red-letter words, but every word of Scripture are the very words of life. Spirit of God, would you work in all of us this morning? Would you make us crisis men and crisis women? That as we share the gospel, as we come in contact with men and women and children, uh, baristas, uh, grocery baggers, uh, people at gas stations, Lord, that each person will be confronted with the gospel in one way, shape, or form. And that they must respond. Give us hearts, Lord, that are responsive to your spirit starting this morning, and as we go through this week. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Acts chapter 17, I I believe, is probably without too much argument, one of the most relevant uh, passages in all of Scripture about for for the church today in reference to how to evangelize the so-called Western world. It gives us a great description of how, how did Paul, the Apostle Paul, by himself in the city of Athens, how did he bring about sharing the good news to the people of Athens? John Stott, as, and we're going to read it in a little bit, but John Stott wrote nearly 40 years earlier that this passage answers the kind of questions being faced by our modern and postmodern world today. Questions such as, and he writes... What should be the reaction of Christians who visits or lives in a city which is dominated by non-Christian ideology or religion? A city which may be aesthetically magnificent and culturally sophisticated, but morally decadent and spiritually deceived or dead. This, this past weekend, uh, our family traveled to Milwaukee. Milwaukee is Beautiful. It's got great beaches. It's, got, it's a wonderful city that's filled with architecture, maybe not quite like Chicago on a little lower scale, but it's a beautiful city that's known for its art, its love for the arts. But also within that city, there is a non-Christian ideology. There's a lack of a truly religion apart, which is apart from Christ. So our question this morning is, how do we, as brothers and sisters in Christ, how do we react and respond to the increasing domination of a non-Christian ideology in the greater Lincoln Way area, wherever we live? How do we respond to this increasing growth knowing that we no longer live in a Christian nation? How do we respond? And this passage, I believe, helps us answer these important questions. And we're going to see in this story that this story we find represented all the elements and which constitute the so-called religions of the world. And it suggests how the systems are to be approached and how we can meet, be met by other followers of Christ and how we can lead people to Christ. So I want you to, to join me. I want you to follow it. verse uh, chapter 17, verse 16, and we're going to read to 34. Now, while Paul, Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching of Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. The God who made the heaven and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men. Nor does he, is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they would seek God in hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of you of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought to think that the divine being is not like, is, is, that the divine being is like gold or silver, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, He has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again on this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some of the men joined them and believed, among whom were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. So these so-called religions that we see here in scripture and we even see in our world can kind of be divided into three different ways. The synagogue, the the superstitious or the spiritual, and the skeptical. The latter is increasingly uh, characterized in our, our own culture. We see more and more and more people to be skeptical. It's it's extremely permissible for people to be spiritual, but it's even more hip and sexy and trendy to be skeptical, to always be asked, well, I'm not sure about that. If you've ever talked about your faith with people, immediately they go, well, you know, yeah, I don't know. That might be true for you, but what about me? Uh, I don't know. They're, they're kind of always on this edge of, oh, oh. Like, yeah, I can kind of. But what about, have you ever encountered those people where they're, they're always kind of, uh, I don't know, well, what about? I got a question about, and they're always skeptical. Just ask anybody who's even gone to college or come out of college. There is, it seems like our colleges have kind of propagated this skepticism in the classrooms. Never be sure. Truth is ultimately found in You. So, this is what the church faces in the cities. This is what the church faces in the universities. This is what the church faces in our own towns and our neighborhoods as we seek to shine the light of Christ, the light of the gospel out. And it's not an easy task. It's not. And we'll just put it out there it's not an easy task. The city, the universities, our towns, our neighborhoods present unique challenges us as we share the gospel. This postmodern era presents unique challenges. Nothing is new under the sun. But the reality is there are challenges that we must be able to be able to address. One of the issues seen in the city and more generally is that there is an opposition to the gospel. As the cities grow, so does the opposition to the gospel. Often this takes on the shape and form of skepticism. And our area is honestly no different. You look in the, the big university towns or the East Coast or the large cities. New York is known for skepticism. University towns are known for being skeptical of the gospel, opposed to the gospel. And we see it in, you can see it in the news that there are even Christian clubs and chapters where they are being pushed because of skepticism. So as Christians, how do we respond to this? And I believe that this passage truly helps us out. We can see, and we will see even more so, that the pagan philosophies and the Christless religionists of, of Athens in Paul's days did not, has not changed much over the years. It's almost the exact same thing. The names have changed, but the content of what they believe is pretty much the same. This, this thing that happened in Athens is basically the same thing that we are encountering today. The result is that today, as then in the urban and the suburban church, we will always face people who are skeptical. So I pray that this morning, God will help us be further equipped That's one of my primary tasks, is to equip you. I want us to be equipped to speak of our Savior in our context. To do it convincingly, winsomely, boldly. So we look at verse 16. Verse 16 has much to teach us and motivate us concerning meaningful, deep evangelism. Let's read it. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, if you remember from last week, Todd shared that uh, Paul was kind of pushed out. The the brother said, hey, why don't you move on? While the others stayed behind. So Paul went on. He was waiting for them in Athens. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. We need to remember that Paul, for Paul, Paul, Evangelism was not merely a task to pre- be performed. It wasn't just a, a task to be performed. Instead, Nathan threw up this, the next slide. It, or evangelism, flowed from his estimation of the treasure that he esteemed Christ and his gospel to be. In other words... Evangelism came and flowed out of him because of how highly he valued Christ and Christ's gospel. Because Christ was worthy of all praise and all adoration, his whole life purpose, because Christ was worth it, evangelism flowed from that. Evangelism just naturally moved because he valued, he estimated that Christ was a treasure for selling his entire life. For, because of what Christ has done in him, because of who Christ is, evangelism just naturally flowed from that. This verse introduces us again to what moved Paul and his missional movement. Basically, initially, Paul was just waiting, he was just waiting for his co workers probably t- so that he could even return to Macedonia. Because if you remember, there was that Macedonian call and he felt strongly to go to Macedonia. God had called him in a dream to go there. He had a vision. He, come, come, share the good news. And Paul was kind of kicked out of Macedonia and he was waiting in Athens. So he's, he's just hanging out there so that he could go back because he was avoiding persecution. He didn't want it. Nobody wants it. And you are going to remember that he desires persecution. To share the gospel. He wanted to go back. And while he was waiting. More than likely he was praying for his brothers. Who were, who were back there in that area. Who he had left behind in Thessalonica. And as he waited in this well known city. It was a historic city. He did what most tourists do. What do you do? You check out the city Right? If you got a day or two or a week or three laid over in a well-known city like New York or Chicago or San Diego or wherever it is, you don't just sit in your hotel room. You walk the city. You check it out. And what does he do? It says here, he walked around. We know this because in verse 23, he says, as I passed along, as I was walking through the city. And as he walked around, he paid close attention to his surroundings. Very close attention. And what he saw was a very spiritual city. No doubt he was impressed by the fine Athenian architecture. Up on a hill, there was an amazing temple. And on top of it was one of the gods with a a very large spear. And this spear was made of pure gold. And they could say for 40 miles away that you could see the tip of this spear shining in the sun. It was just glimmering. So the architecture was absolutely amazing. But he could not have failed to notice the tens of thousands of statues. Most of which were idols. Idols. It's been estimated that Athens housed over 300,000 statues to gods. One historian said that it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. So many altars and gods and statues. Many of these statues were covered in gold and no, no expense was spared at all to make much of their god. There were statues to Apollo, to Jupiter, to Venus, to Mercury, to Neptune, to Diana, and a whole lot more. And Paul saw at least one synagogue in addition. And as was his custom, he took the opportunity to preach there, to, to, to share the gospel there. He was, but what he found was he encountered superstition that would soon engage the skeptics even there. In short... Paul saw a city awash in idolatry. The Greek here, when it talks about the number of idols that Paul saw, it gives the idea in the original Greek that the city was swamped or submerged with all the idolatry there. Swamped or submerged in it. And this did not sit well with Paul. It bothered him. And I want you to think for a moment. When you really look at the city that you live in, when you look at the neighborhood that you live in, what do you see? As you walk about your neighborhoods or your job, what is it that you see? I just see people. I see houses. I see people outside playing. What, what do you as members of the Church of Jesus Christ see when you walk, when you take a family walk, when you go from the train to the taxi to the place that you work at, when you drive the interstates? What is it that you see? I would suggest that if we really pay attention with real spiritual Hearts and spiritual eyes and spiritual ears, if we pay attention, we will see the same thing that Paul saw cities submerged or swamped with idolatry. And we need to see this. We need to be troubled by it. We need to be intent on doing something about it. Do we see idolatry even in our own cities? Do we? We were at a kind of a Christian function, and one person uh, saw how parents were kind of fawning over their children, and uh, this this woman described it as child idolatry. Do we, do we even see sometimes? Not saying that athletics is wrong. Hear me say that. Or Little League or your kids' different activities aren't necessarily wrong. But is it possible that even that is idolatry? That we worship our children so much? In the greater Lincoln Way area, athleticism, child idolatry. Well, we see the the prophet Ezekiel even in Ezekiel 3.15. He was ministering to the Babylonian exiles. And he said in 3.15, he said, where they, he sat, I sat where they were dwelling. That experience would ultimately affect how he felt about his nation. We even see in Jeremiah earlier, in Jeremiah uh, or Lamentations 3.51, he said, my eyes cause me grief at the fate of the daughters of my city. Such was the case with Paul in Athens. Paul's love for the triune God was the cause for this disturbance. Paul's love for God's glory and God receiving all the praise, all the praise, all the praise, all the the honor, all of it, was a thing that caused a A great disturbance in it. It said in verse 16 that his spirit was greatly provoked within him. The word is translated paroxysm. And it's a strong word. And it's often used in medical purposes for someone who has an epileptic fit. But the tense of this verb was that it was a prolonged weightiness and being disturbed over the course of a long time. It was a continuous, unsettled reaction to what Paul saw. It carries the idea that he was greatly disturbed, and it can even mean that he was irritated. Not that he was rash and he was angry and he went out swinging, but something about him was provoked. As he walked the city, he was just going, this is not right. This is... God... This is not right, how they are worshiping stuff made with their hands. This is not right, God. And his spirit was deeply provoked, and Paul was moved to a righteous jealousy for the glory of God. In fact, the, the word is used in the Old Testament in this very fashion. It was God who is a jealous God. And when we read that Paul was provoked to anger, we should not automatically assume that his anger was sinful. When it comes to intruding in the sphere of God's glory, in God's sphere of where he should be receiving glory, no one has the right to be there. And we believe that all things are for him and to him and through him. Ultimately, all things are created for his glory Everything, everything was created for him. And when anything intrudes into that sphere, we should have a jealousy for God's glory. Whatever it is. And it's right to have that kind of jealousy or that anger when we see this happen in much the same way. A husband has the right to be angry, to be jealous in regards to the relationship he has for his wife. So God has the right, as we do, to be jealous over his glory. Every right. And Paul was zealous for the glory of God and therefore, as he, as he toured this great city. He's walking around and he saw 300,000 idols and statues and altars and things built to all these other gods. And his heart was burning within him and he was moved to grief over the nauseating reality that these idols were being glorified in the city rather than the God who deserves all the glory. It deeply disturbed his body, deeply disturbed his soul. This is one of the motivating motivations of a a faithful uh, missionary named Henry Martin. And there's a quote I want you to throw up there, Nathan. Nathan. He was a missionary to India and Persia, which is also known as Iran now. And he died at the age of 31. But he once said this, I could not endure existence if Jesus was not glorified. It would be hell to me if he were to be always dishonored. Is that true for you? Could you endure existence if Jesus was not glorified? On your street, could you just endure existing if, in your workplace, people were not glorifying God but worshiping advancement in work, the money that they received, worshiping relationships, family over God? Would, would it would it be a living hell for you if Christ was constantly dishonored? or are we so numbed to living in this culture that it's like ah you know what we all have to make choices or i'm grown comfortable to this or to that can we echo martin's same convictions can we say i cannot endure existence if christ is not glorified in my neighbor in my city in my city in my workplace in my world it moves me I can't handle it. We must remember that God has planted, you have got to remember that God has planted each and every one of you in a certain place for the purpose. He's planted you in Oak Forest, He's planted you in Tinley Park, He's planted you in uh, New Lenox and Mokina and wherever you might be. God has planted you there. For a purpose, and that purpose is a purpose of bringing glory, his glory, to bear in that community. That's why God has planted you there. He hasn't planted you there for your own creature comforts, because the taxes are high or low, or the great schools. He has planted you there so ultimately that his glory will come to bear in that community, whether it's rural or city, urban or suburban. God has planted you each in certain places so that his glory will come to bear in those communities. He has planted Missio Dei Church here for the same purposes. The same purposes. And as worshipers of the one and true God, we should see idolatry around us and we should be moved to gospel ministry for the glory of God. Corporately and individually. As families, as individuals, as missional communities, as a greater church body, we should see idolatry around us and we should be moved to greater gospel ministry wherever God has planted us. Paul's passion was clearly set forth in verses 17 through 21. And we, all, we can also speak of this as Paul's plan, of how he, he moved forward. For, for once his emotions were moved for glorifying God's name, he had to do something. He had to put a plan into motion. And what he planned to do was to speak truth into this mess. He was compelled. It's like, are you serious? God is the one worthy of all the glory and honor due to him because of who he is and what he's done. He deserves all that. And the only way that we can bring about change is speaking truth into the mess. And his passion informed his plan. And to be honest, his plan was a given. He didn't need to strategize. He didn't need to take a class. He didn't need to go to seminary. He didn't need to do any of that. He simply looked. And made an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. He spoke. God, God's not glorified here. He's not being glorified in the Areopagus. He was not in the in the in the marketplace. He wasn't being glorified there. He wasn't being glorified in this religious spiritual section. So what does he do? He spoke. He spoke into the the synagogue and the religious place. He spoke into the marketplace. He spoke into all these places. His passion drove his plan, and his passion was to proclaim the gospel. Is our passion the gospel? Is your passion the gospel? Let's consider what Paul did. He acted differently in different ways. Settings, and we, we've got to be wise that way too. We don't do the same thing in every place. First, the synagogue. The first place that he went there was, as was his custom, he always went to the synagogue first. Depending on your translation, it, could, it starts off with either so or therefore, and it implies action. So, therefore, Implied action. Paul saw things as they, ought, they were not to be. And he felt deeply that they should not replay, be, be that exact same way. So, or therefore, he acted about to do something. He wanted to bring about change. And he sought to speak truth into falsehood. And he sought to point the Athenians to the true God. So his first stop was the, the synagogue. To the Jews first It was always his motto. And after seeing the idolatry in the city close up, he made a beeline to the place that should have been a haven for true religion. The synagogue ought to be the place void of empty religion. But I suspect what he found there was empty. Jewish orthodoxy without Christ. Which can often be the case for churches. Christian orthodoxy without Christ. We can be orthodox about this is right, this is wrong. But Without Christ, it's just strange legalism that burdens people. And one of the reasons that I can say that it was fruitless and it was without Christ was because we have no record of anyone being converted in the synagogue as we saw in the other places, in, in Philippi, in Thessalonica, in Berea. I wonder if the skeptical idolatry of Athens ultimately infected and affected the synagogue. It should be lamented that idolatry enveloped the city despite the presence of the synagogue. And we can say the same thing. It it should be lamented that idolatry envelops our city despite the presence of a local church. If anything, we should be salt and light. And what does salt do? It preserves and it flavorizes. Light brings brings to bear what is hidden in darkness. In our cities, we should become salt and light in our cities in such a way that there's no more l- lamenting, that decay has come to an end. But perhaps the God defying religion of the pagans had watered down the Jewish confidence in their own scriptures. And it's a shame that a people called to be the light of the nations were in so much spiritual darkness themselves. And for whatever reason, it appears that the synagogue in the city was no better off spiritually than the superstitious superstitious pagans. They were just as skeptical as the The average person when it came even to hearing from their own scriptures. So Paul having no success in, in the synagogues, he hit the streets and he engaged the average Athenian and he began in the marketplace where he spoke to the people right where they were, right where they were, And as they were, where they were working. And this is an amazing and a lovely scene for us to wrap our heads around. And it's instructive for us. Paul was going to the marketplace. If we will reach people, if we have a desire to reach people, then we should be encouraged that they are all around us. Even in the marketplace. Even in our workplace, we simply need to make contact with them. The problem is that we have set up dichotomies or dualism. This is my Christian life, and it's really privatized, and it's really nice and safe and secure over here. And I'm going to let my my Sunday or my Christian life be reserved for my missional community or my Sunday morning worship or maybe when I meet with a a Christian friend, and we're going to leave it really put in that little Tupperware container of Christianity. But the rest of my life, it will not be tainted by what is in that Tupperware container called Christianity. The reality is Paul engaged skeptics and the spiritual wherever he went. We need to also just come in contact with people because the reality is both in the synagogue and in the marketplace where people live side by side and apparently harmoniously most of the time, it's always the presence of the Savior that upsets the proverbial apple cart. Always. The skeptics we see at some point Paul happened uh, upon two opposing groups, the Epicureans and the Stoics who would unite, come together, even though they had very uh, different worldviews, they would unite to come together to oppose Paul. First, the Epicureans, they were the rationalists of the days. They were deistic in believing that God set things. God was always distant, but he set things into motion. And he was really, honestly, God was disinterested with his creation. They, they es- desired to escape all pain as they pursued pleasure. It's the Epicureans who said, Eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we sh- will probably die. So today, what do we do? We seek pleasure. Eat, drink, be merry. For tomorrow we shall die. What, what, a, what a philosophy, right? But it kind of sounds like some of our American philosophy, Right? It wasn't necessarily always hedonistic pleasure, but it was rather a tranquility and a peaceful life free from troubles and let's avoid all kinds of pain as much as possible. Erdman, Charles Erdman put it this way, the Epicureans were practically materialists and atheists. They taught that the real aim of existence is pleasure. Start thinking American culture. That pleasure is only good and pain is the only evil That virtue is to be sought only because it yields the most enjoyment, that man should be free himself from all belief in the gods or in the immortality of his soul, that the universe was not created but resulted from a chance concourse of atoms. Does that sound familiar at all? Man, free yourself from religion. You be your own God. Seek pleasure. Live at peace. Coexist. Just live. And everything happens ultimately because of the concourse of atoms and an explosion. The Stoics had a little bit different philosophy. The Stoics did not... leave in a personal God, but rather that God existed in everything. They were much like the branches of Hinduism that we have today. They faced life as realists, and in some, some ways they did not expect things to, to change, but instead they dug in and apathetically waited the hand of faith and whatever the hand of fate would deal them. The Stoics, unlike the Epicureans, did not seek to escape pain. On the contrary, they were intent on disciplining themselves to nobly endure pain. We can do it. Take another one for the team. We're strong. As a matter of oversimplification, John Stott said in his uh, commentary, it was characteristic of the Epicureans to emphasize chance, escape, and the enjoyment of pleasure, and the Stoics to emphasize fatalism, submission, And the endurance of pain, suck it up and take one for the team. We can handle it. Based not only on their philosophy itself, but also on the response to Paul, they were both skeptical. The authority for their belief system was based on man and their own autonomous ideas. I am the center of the universe. I deal with fate as it comes. And this is why Paul responded to them as he did. The skeptics are repulsed by those who claim to have authority outside of themselves. Does that sound familiar? As you enter conversations with people who are, who are not Christians and you start saying, these are my claims to Christianity and claims to truth. What? What? That's outside of you. You're claiming this old archaic book has authority in your life? Are you serious? Do you know how long ago that was written and by who it was written? It's not even personal. And you're taking this as truth and informing your entire life? Yeah. Paul encountered them purposefully and preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they were quite unimpressed. Quite unimpressed. In fact, they probably were confused because they thought that Paul was preaching about two gods, Jesus and Anastasis. Anastasis was the god of the resurrection. So there's probably even confusion. The, and I love how they talked about Paul and, and this confusion. Over the years, I've been called a lot of things by a lot of people, some of them not so complimentary, um, maybe you've had that too, but I've never been called a babbler. And that's what he was called here. Who is this babbler is talking? And this word literally means seed picker. He's a seed picker. It's used in reference to birds who scavenged for food. It came to, uh, to be mean, uh, to mean a uh, reference to someone, uh, someone who is unoriginal. Who has, never, who, who has to rely on scraps of knowledge from others rather than originating something profound from their own mind. Paul was a seed picker. Since Paul never had an original theology, he was clearly a seed picker. He was clearly a seed picker. And so am I. And so are you. You. if you believe that the Bible is the final authority for what you believe and what you do. I don't have an original thought. I seed pick. One of the dangers that we face in reasoning with skeptics is the temptation to try to sound clever and original. And I speak from experience. There, there was a point in my youth ministry days where I really wanted to be clever and kind of sexy and come up with these neat little series and word things in a really neat crafted kind of way and kind of a postmodern so I could just be this or be that. And we're tempted to cite all these other people and all these places and things and stuff like that. But the reality is Paul quoted primary sources, namely scripture. And without... Citing chapter and verse, he quoted scripture to them and trusted God's work to do the work of salvation. He was ultimately a seed picker and they were right. And I gather that not all the skeptics were antagonistic and perhaps several of them were interested in in Paul's seed picking theology. Some were intrigued by the strange things that he spoke of and to them he was preaching a new teaching or a a new doctrine so they wanted to know what these, these things meant. And others were just seriously, they were interested in metaphysical or philosophical discussion for the discussion's sake. And i have run into people like that. They just want to keep on engaging because they just want to keep on having a discussion and they just want to keep on, oh, tell me more about that or tell me more of that. But they never get to a point of wanting to come to a conclusion. They just want to discuss for philosophical sake, well, have you ever read so-and-so? Or what about so-and-so? And they just keep on wanting to go on. William Barclay captures the kind of listeners that encountered Paul. They did not want action They did not even particularly want conclusions. All they wanted was mental aerobics and the stimulus of a mental hike. It sounds very familiar to our day and age. So ultimately, they brought him to the Areopagus, the place where the city council met the, because this is where rulings of, can new religions come and be a part of these 300,000 gods? And a final ruling would be there. But here's, here's the thing. Is this, this was not just a light thing that they brought into the city council. It's not like going to New Lenox or going to the Frankfurt City Hall. Because what happened in Athens a few hundred years before was a certain man brought an unauthorized god to Athens. And it led to him dying By consuming hemlock. Who was that? Socrates. So Paul is going before that same city council. Who had the reputation of killing off a man who consumed hemlock. Because he was introducing a new God. Oh giddy up. Uh, He's coming up to a chance. That he may. He'll have to proclaim the gospel. No matter what the, the cost. And the consequence. And he's never shy, never shy to preach the gospel. And this was no exception. You got in verses 22 to 31 where he just stands up and just says, this is who he is. This is what he's done. This is the description of this kind of God that I am preaching to you. And he was standing before one of the most skeptical crowds that he would ever preach. And we should be somewhat astounded by Paul's wisdom in how he presented it, and his courage. For Paul in Athens, it required an uncommon degree of courage to speak. For it would be hard to imagine a less receptive or a more scornful crowd. Todd last week used the quote to describe from John Calvin to describe Paul's courage. He was just, Paul was described as having an unconquerable mental courage and an indefatigable endurance of the cross. And that's true even here. As he's standing before people who could say, here's your cup of justice. Drink up. Courage. And at this point, Paul wisely began to, the common cultural reference and is just saying, look, I, I see that you are very spiritual people. And it's true even of our day. We can see that people in our day are very spiritual. He didn't open up a scroll, the scroll of scripture, like he would have when he was in the synagogue. Nevertheless, he was thoroughly biblical. He was very, he tactfully noted the observation as a tourist in the city, as a guest of the city, that the city was very religious and very spiritual. And he even noticed that one particular idol, I was very observant and I noticed that there was an altar to the unknown God. And this story came from long before Paul was ever around. The problem where these altars to the unknown God came from was that Athens was struck at one time by a particular plague and no one could seem to cure it. And when sacrifices to every God in the city resulted in no relief, the Athenians let loose several cattle. And wherever the cattle laid their butt, they sacrificed the cow there and erected an altar to the unknown God. Apparently, there was a God who was angered that they did not yet know who needed justice. And Paul spotted one such altar and it used as a springboard for his gospel message It was as if he was saying, listen, you and I have a common reference point. We are both religious. Let me tell you about the God that I worship and the God that I serve. And although this God may have been foreign to the Athenian people, Paul's goal was to change that. Listen, you may not know this this unknown God, but let me bring you up close and tell you about him so that you may know him. He would soon explain that this God was no foreign God at all. And he made them and we should all know him. Paul begins with creation. Lays it all out that this is a God that is not distant and disconnected. That he is intimately involved This is a God who made the world and everything in it since he is the Lord of heaven and of earth. He doesn't dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives life, all life and breath and all things. This God is not disinterested in his creation. In fact, God is sovereignly independent, which implies our dependence on him. Then Paul lays out a powerful statement referencing our common origin and highlights God's involvement in the world through his providence in verses 26 to 28. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and was determined their pre-appointed times and their boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope or grovel or search for him. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own prophets have said, we are all his own offspring. Note, note how Paul was so able to use culturally or familiar uh, poets from their day. that Paul quoted twice. It's like us quoting um, songs some of our favorite uh, top 40 or whatever songs or stuff that we've read from philosophers, we're able to say, and listen, I, I'm familiar with this stuff just like you are. I'm able to quote them, but do you see how these are all related? He wasn't just doing a, a pop cultural ploy to get a a hearing. Paul was building a bridge because he understood the importance of double listening. The apostle emphasized that man is lost and thus blind to the unknown God. Not because God is unknowable, but rather because man is sinful. Paul lays out the gospel message. And in his closing, he, he comes and he emphasizes that we are made in the image of God. We, we are his offspring. And we must come to terms with the reality, the reality that we are dealing with a personal God, a God who knows us one who makes the rules, one to whom we must give an account, one before whom we must repent. This is the message that the city needs. This is the message that the city needs. Soup kitchens, pro-life ministries, adoption opportunities, and all kinds of ministries of mercy are needed in the city, absolutely. But ultimately, Each person in the city will stand before God one day. And what they need at that point is Christ. They need Christ more than a pro life ministry. Dare I say that? They need Christ more than they need a soup kitchen. They need Christ. They need him now. And so, with all of our concern for the city and our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends and our families, let us preach Christ crucified, Christ risen, Christ reigning and Christ returning. Paul ultimately had to depart. Athens and, but thank God some turned to him they responded to the gospel Dionysus Damaris, Damaris and others responded to the gospel Paul's desire was repentance before it's too late repentance before it was too late sad thing is, we don't read here, but it it could be found, possibly. We don't read that a church was planted there, at least in Paul's time. In addition to what we've seen, we need to be reminded that ultimately, the gospel is the remedy for the city. The gospel is the remedy for the city. Not our trick or treat activities that we have here, although they are good, not the brown bag program where we give food to those who are in need. It's not our VBS program that the city needs. What the city needs is the gospel. It's needed by the synagogue, it's needed by the spiritual, it's needed by the skeptical. The gospel is the only message That makes sense of life, whether rural or urban. It's the gospel that people need. And let us take the gospel seriously. Seriously. And when we do that, we will see that others take the gospel seriously as well. Throw up that last slide there, Nathan, about Jim Elliott. Is the first slide that I had you show. Taking the gospel seriously. Pray that this is our prayer, Father. Make me a crisis man or woman. Bring those I contact to decision. Let me not be a milepost on a single road. Make me a fork. that men must turn one way or another on facing Christ in me. Paul led by example. If the gospel is what is the message that is needed for the city to give them hope, it's also true for us. If it's true for you that the gospel is the most important thing, And I pray that God makes you a crisis person. As you grow in confidence of the gospel, of the work that's done in your life, that Christ, who became man, the perfect God-man, took on flesh, (coughs) dwelled among us, lived an absolutely perfect life, fulfilled the law in every possible way, Died the death that we deserve so that we are protected from the wrath of God, so that we may be made right before God and have life eternally. That is the good news that God prepared a way, gave us a way through Christ Jesus. That is the good news. I pray that as we live those kind of lives and share that message, that we become Christ's men. In crisis women. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you uh, impress on us the importance of the gospel, that you help us understand that each person in our city, in our neighborhood, in our family, will stand before you, God, someday. And that the only thing that they need at that point is Christ and his perfect atoning work in our lives. God, I pray that you will impress that deeply in our heart. Lord, that our hearts would be uh, like Paul. Provoked. Our spirits would be provoked by what we see as people are offering glory and worship and praise and honor to other things in the sphere that is only yours. God, would that move us to, to tears? Would that move us to compassion? Would it move us to jealousy for your name? Every man, woman, and child that we see, a, apart from you, Lord, would we we be moved to compassion that they may find healing in Jesus Christ, wholeness in Jesus Christ through the gospel. We confess, Lord, that you are, you are totally trustworthy in all that you have said through script, scripture, totally trustworthy in your character, totally trustworthy in what you have accomplished. All those things are absolutely perfect. So God, may we have great confidence in you and boldness in what you have done for us because of who you are. And Lord, may that propel us Propel us to be bold and compassionate, contextual Christians to all that we come in contact with. All that we come in contact with. And God, forgive us for not caring. It is far easier sometimes, God, to just not care. but just to be holed up in our, our homes, our safety zones, create Christian Tupperware bubbles. God, the thing that we need is the gospel that was preached to us, the gospel that saved us, that, the gospel that we're standing in, and the gospel that will save us. We need that again today, God. So we confess our, ap- our apathy. We confess our, our desire to be self-sufficient, to be our own gods. God, we confess about uh, the marriages that we have that are more concerned about our safety and our security of our children and our marriage and our, our home, our, our safe havens than we are for the world. God, forgive us for the fences that we build both physically and spiritually, relationally, emotionally that keep people away from the gospel. God, even on this Father's Day where there may be pain because of relationships with the fathers that we might have, God, help us break down those walls by the power of your spirit so that we can reach over and share the most important message of salvation found in Jesus Christ.